Hi, I'm Natalie. I don't actually remember not being a Christian, and aside from a few years in my 20s, I don't remember not going to church, but I always felt like there had to be something more to it than what I was experiencing, because I didn't have any experience with freedom or change or joy or hope, and I wanted to. So I started looking at areas of my life that I didn't particularly want to look into. I started paying attention to when I got angry or when something hurt or when I was so uncomfortable in the situation that I couldn't function. And I started asking God to talk to me about it and he did. And then I started trying to give it to him so that I wasn't carrying that kind of stuff around with me anymore. And a funny thing happened as a result of that. It wasn't my goal, but I found that the more progress I made and the more of me that I got, I ended up wanting more of Christ, which wasn't the plan. It wasn't why I got into it. But I found that the kind of love that he was showing me, because he wasn't getting anything out of it except more me. And that kind of love, I didn't quite know what to do with. And so the more me I had to work with, the more Christ I wanted in my life. And I realized that all along, all I had to figure out was how to let him love me and how to let him help me because he was always wanting to do it. So I'm, I'm pretty glad I finally figured out how it worked. Hi, my name's Travis, and I'm gonna share a little bit of uh, my story with you. Just about two years ago, after some teaching on the Trinity, the Lord revealed to me a picture of who He is. I've come to see the Trinity like the different personalities of God, and in that moment, for the very first time, I also saw a vision of the Holy Spirit and he came alive to me for the very first time. It was awesome, it was profound, and, and he was so beautiful. It wasn't a prophetic vision for the church or for other people. It was a prophetic vision for me. And the fact that it was just for me was deeply impacting to me. It helped cement how deeply personal and intimate the Holy Spirit wants to be with me. It also showed me how important I must be to him if he relates to me in that way. And it's a humbling experience to be loved for the real me. The Holy Spirit is ushering in humility and freedom where my constant striving used to be. As I pondered this experience, two characteristics just really jumped out at me, really were the strong points. First, his absolute power, and second, his perfect precision. For 18 months, I practiced living in this new reality, humbly building a relationship of trust. And then the combination of those two ideas became infinitely more important to me. When I reached the crux move in my journey so far, a point at which I needed to invite the Holy Spirit in and allow him to remove from my spirit, from my body, 
the unrighteous authority I'd been carrying. At that moment, I absolutely needed to know and trust that he was absolutely powerful and had perfect precision. And as I quite literally felt him take some of those things from my body, I knew they were gone. And I believed like I never have before. I never really truly wanted Christ to lead or be lead my life or be first. And starting that practice was really hard and it still is hard and I'm only just beginning. So the Lord speaks to me through music, like this happens to me a lot. And so when he gave me a brand new song on the exact morning that I was asked to share this, I didn't see that as a coincidence. The lyric that jumped out at me from that song goes like this. I don't even know if I believe everything you're trying to say to me. So open up my eyes, tell me I'm alive. And his response to me, Travis, don't worry about it. We're together now. You and me together can work anything out. He has opened my eyes and I'm starting to believe. And as he breathes life into me, I'm coming alive in new ways to both him and myself. He's been so gracious to me in that, and I'm so grateful. Hi, Journey. My name is Lindsay Kaufman, and I have held misconceptions about the Lord Jesus, mostly in my heart, not so much in my mind. I could have told you what he was like because of what the Bible says, but the reality of his nature and his beauty was something that I just wasn't really finding connected to my heart. Um, I went through a very difficult season in my life and after that season I actually put the Lord on the shelf for two decades. I was hurt and confused and angry because of my situation and it was a long time that I turned my back on the Lord, but it was He that approached me and asked me a question that changed my life. And that question was, Lindsay, what about you and me? Is this how it's going to stay? Is this the chapter? Is this where it ends? And at that turning point when I said yes to the Lord that I would walk with Him again, He has since that time been revealing His beauty to my heart and not just my head, for which I am ever so thankful. As I've had a very purposeful journey in seeking the healing of my spirit, I have found him to be patient and kind and gentle. And he even allowed me to see and feel how he felt about me at that time in my life where I had set him aside and I was so delighted to see that what he felt about me was the joy of my an anticipation of my return and the judgment and condemnation I had carried from that time in my life from turning my back on him when I told him I wanted to love him and serve him with all my heart that that was never his judgment or condemnation it was my own and I have had the experience of feeling his heart in shedding tears for others and feeling his sorry 
And that has been rather mind-blowing to me, to experience how he feels, the sorrow he feels for our pain and our broken hearts and our losses. A couple of winters ago, I was taking time just watching the snow fall and filling up the branches and every twig on the bare trees. And I felt like he opened my eyes and I saw it as a living picture of his mercy, covering, blanketing every minute detail of the landscape. And I also felt his heart, that it was his desire to cover the barren places and the losses in our life. And I'm really beginning to feel like I am understanding his nature in a ways that were just words on a page before that I am seeing him as not only one who creates beauty, but wants to take that which is damaged and broken and even ugly and redeem it because he himself is the definition of beauty. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul. Bless his holy name. Thank you. Hi, Journey. I want to introduce you to our friend Dr. Peter Holmes, who's been on staff with us for over seven years, helping run the Rafa Journey Discipleship Ministry. He's a psychologist, a pastor, and he's ordained in our denomination, the Evangelical Church. We're really happy to have him here today with us. Please give a warm welcome to Dr. Peter Holmes. <laughs> Thank you. Good evening. Well, I want to thank Natalie Long and Travis Barr and Lindsay Kaufman for beautiful testimony and Brandon for the very kind welcome. Let's pray. Our Father God, as we walk through the Lenten season, we want to learn to do it with you, with your Son, with your Spirit. So as we open Scripture together, speak to us, we pray, in the name of Christ. Amen. Christ planned his own death. It was the beauty, the courage, the boldness of will of Christ himself that took him to the cross. Before his conception, he was the man born to die. And even as he entered his teenage years, he knew he needed to be at his father's business. His destiny was the cross, and he came to die. And the life he lived from the moment he was baptized, his public ministry, was not a ministry that gave people happy feelings, although 
it did heal a lot of people. It wasn't intended to create friendship and warmth. For Christ, it was about truth. Speaking the truth, speaking of his life, his calling and who he was and what he had come to do. And that upset a lot of people. But he's walking down into the River Jordan. They, John the Baptist is standing there waiting for him. He baptizes him. And at the very beginning of his public ministry, there is a declaration that this man is the Son of God. Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. John 1, 29. These are his own words. John 12, 25 to 33. The man who loves his life will lose it, while the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My father will honor the one who serves me. Now my heart is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No. It was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that was there heard what was said, that it sounded like thunder. Others said an angel had spoken to him. Jesus said, This voice was not for my benefit but yours. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. But I, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to myself. From the beginning of his public ministry, he made it very easy for his enemies. And before long, there were quite a few of them. The Sanhedrin and the religious leaders were absolutely terrified. They'd lose their job and get sacked if there was an uprising led by a king to try and drive out Rome. They 
had no wish to give this man any space. But Christ had a destiny and he knew exactly what he was doing. So this is the beginning of his ministry, John 2. And what's he doing? Well, he's in Jerusalem. He's in the temple. And he goes and he begins throwing over the tables of the money changers. He begins to cause absolute havoc. He even makes a whip. And he starts beating the cattle and the sheep and driving them out of the temple. I would call that a public relations disaster. And that was just the beginning. In fact, at that time, he stood up in the temple and he declared this. Destroy this temple and I will raise it up again. In three days, John 2, 19. And he continued that way, talking about his own destiny. He was not hiding the fact that he had a plan, and this plan was going to go through whatever. Unless you eat the flesh and drink the blood of the Son of Man, you have no life in you, John 6, 53. He taught that particular aspect of teaching in Capernaum at the synagogue. And he made a point of going around all the religious centers. And he went to the public places, the synagogues, and he taught, and he taught, and he taught. Some heard and followed. Others began to curse him. In fact, it was in Capernaum, listen to this, many followers deserted him, John 6, 40 and 66. It was getting too hot. But his biggest challenge was the Jewish leaders. He was at the Feast of Tabernacles. He was in the temple again. And he gets into a debate about who is the Christ. At this, they tried to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him because his time had not yet come. John 7.30. His claims about himself were absolutely clear. I tell you the truth, before Abraham was... I am, John 8, 58. And their response, they picked up stones to stone him, but he hid himself from them. John 8, 58. Christ always remained in control of his destiny. And throughout his ministry, on numerous occasions, he slipped away in the crowds. He hid himself. On one occasion, they were trying to push him over a cliff. 
and he just turned around and his presence pushed back the people as he walked through them. He would choose when he died, nobody else. He had a plan. So over the three years, the tension grew. And at the Feast of Dedication in Jerusalem, there were more and more arguments. John 10, 21. He turned and slipped away. This continued until the tipping point. Christ was in Jerusalem and there was a big crowd. There were a lot of religious leaders, the pious Pharisees, the Sadducees, all listening to this man, very troubled by him. Hey, this guy's trouble. We've got to get rid of him. Jesus hears that Lazarus has died and he weeps. But he doesn't go anywhere for three days. After three days, he goes to Bethany. And along with the crowds that followed him were a number of the religious leaders. Now, these guys are ready to take him out. And they go to Bethany, to the home of Mary and Martha, and they just witness what's about to happen. And of all things on earth, Christ raises Lazarus from the dead. Now, one would think that would be a wonderful experience. It might frighten us, but boy, we'd love to see something like that. Come out! And he did, from the grain, from the tomb. But from that time onward, John says, they sought to crucify him. What they didn't know is that Christ was planning his own crucifixion in his time and in his way. And he had complete control of his destiny. He planned his death carefully. Some of us credit the enemy with killing Christ. Well, the enemy did have a small part to play. He tempted Judas to betray him. And he did. And also Peter. Satan desires you, but I will keep you and restore you. Both of these men, Judas and Peter, ended up doing exactly what Christ said they should do. And in that last 
couple of days, Christ began to unroll his plan. He had already arranged for the Last Supper. He planned that ahead. He sent his disciples. It was meticulously planned. And Jerusalem was bursting with people at that time. Thousands and thousands were coming there for the Passover. And it was the very core of the Jewish year. There's the feet washing. There's the meal. And then there's Christ revealing who's going to betray him. And he says, the one who I dip this bread into this sauce and give it to is the one who will betray me. And he gave it to Judas. And then Christ very specifically looked at Judas and he said, go, do what you intend to do. And it's interesting, it doesn't come through in the English that well, but the Greek is a command. Not to be disobeyed from Christ. Although let me make it clear, it was Judas that chose to do it. They finish the meal. They have a time of praise and worship. And then Christ leads them to the Mount of Olives up to Gethsemane. Mark 14, 43 to 52. And two things happen here. Judas knows this is where Christ would go. But he could have gone the opposite direction and avoided them. He intentionally went there knowing he was going to be arrested, he was going to be put on trial, and he was going to die. He chose that because he planned it that way. He'd also told the disciples that they would scatter when he's arrested. Now, I'd often wondered why that was so important. It's obvious. If all the rest of the disciples had done what impetuous Peter had done and grabbed a sword, they would probably have all died trying to defend Christ in Gethsemane. That would have made a very lean Pentecost. So he said, you're going to scatter. And psychologically, emotionally, that's almost telling them that's what they're going to do. And there's kind of a permission in that, because they do. He doesn't want anything to happen 
that's going to upset either his plans for the birthing of the kingdom of God or for his own destiny to be crucified. Put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? John 18, 11, addressed to Peter, of course. So he's before the Sanhedrin. He's already seen Annas, Annas and then Caiaphas, the high priest. And they have a problem because they cannot kill Christ. They can't crucify him. They're not allowed to put a man to death. Only Rome could do that. So suddenly Herod and Pilate are very important in their plan. And here he is before Herod. And before Herod, he says a few things, then he's silent. And it's said of this man that he was troubled because he knew this man was something special. But Christ chose to remain silent. Now, Christ is a man who had won absolutely every argument he'd ever had. Read how many times the scribes and the Pharisees and the leaders turned around and walked away after he'd said something of profound wisdom. Christ knew how to debate. He knew how to convince people. And yet here, at this point, he chooses to remain silent and his silence condemns him. Then there's Pilate. Boy, there's a lot about Pilate here going to and fro, troubled about the whole thing and looking at this man and wanting to trade him because it's Passover and that's what he has the power to do. But it didn't happen. Christ said, well, if that's who you think I am. And it was Pilate when he was actually crucified that took a sign and had it made. Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. In Arabic, in Hebrew, in Greek, and in Latin. And when the Jews turned around and said, you can't do that, it should read, he claims he is. Pilate looked to them and said, I've written what I've written. These men knew better. He submitted to the mocking and the spitting and the taking of his robe. He submitted to the scourge. That's the cat of nine tails, lumps of lead on the end of leather thongs cutting open his back. And that was an act of mercy. The bleeding would help him to die more quickly on the cross. 
But there was one final act. One final act. And Christ remained in charge of his own destiny right to the end. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, It is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. He was God. And when the body no longer has its spirit, it returns to the dust. He died the moment he chose to die. John 19, 30. Where does that leave us? A man in complete control of his destiny. A man who plans his own crucifixion and takes all the necessary steps to ensure this is going to happen. What a remarkable man. Let's pray. Our Father, Lord Jesus, Holy Spirit, we bless you for what you have given to every one of us. That in Christ's death, we all find life. And may we walk with this man through this season to the cross and to the resurrection. Amen.